This series of Friday's Child is brought to you in association with The Healthy Home. I don't know about you mamas, but my desire to nest and organize my home has only increased since the arrival of my daughter. I am obsessed with making sure my home is clean and hygienic for my little one, but there are certain germs and nasties that cannot be seen by the naked eye. Well, this is where the wonderful team at The Healthy Home come in. The Healthy Home is the leading company in the Middle East specialized in advanced eco-friendly sanitization technologies, home services and products. Their esteemed team have been expert leaders in the home services industry since 2013, so they really know what they're doing. As we enter the height of the sweltering summer heat here in the UAE, we are all going to be spending a lot more time in our homes and our AC systems are going to be working overtime. So now is the perfect time to get the healthy home team in to make sure your home is free of impurities that cannot be removed by regular cleaning methods. And if not managed properly, germs, bacteria and viruses can be spread across your home through your AC. Poor indoor air quality can trigger allergies, asthma, eczema, morning fatigue, itchy eyes and even bed bugs. So protect your family and have peace of mind that your home is not only clean, but safe. I recently had the Healthy Home team in to clean and sanitize my baby's nursery, including her crib mattress along with my mattress. And if you want to see what came off my poor mattress after the team had worked their magic, check out my highlighted stories on the Friday's Child Instagram page for a real shot. All their treatments are chemical-free and eco-friendly, so they're 100% safe for infants and children. It felt so fantastic to know my baby's mattress was thoroughly cleaned and sanitized, along with the rest of her nursery. And mamas, guess what? These treatments don't just give you peace of mind that everything is beautifully clean. The benefits also include better breathing, better sleep, and improved energy levels. And I'm delighted to report we all slept very soundly through the night after that one visit from the Healthy Home team. The Healthy Home has quickly become an integral part of our home maintenance, and I've already marked on the calendar our next visit. My guest today is very important to have these treatments every six months to maintain all the fabulous health benefits. If you'd like to find out more about the Healthy Home Services, just visit their website www.thehealthyhome.me or check out their Instagram page, both of which are linked in the show notes of this episode. Welcome to a brand new series of Friday's Child, the podcast on a mission to educate, empower and support you on your parenting journey. I'm your host, Peter, a British expat who's been living in Dubai for 10 years and first-time mama to my gorgeous little girl, Mavia. I have some incredible guests for you this season, including Heidi Murkoff, the author of the iconic, best-selling book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, YouTube star, Nurse Zabe, along with amazing childbirth educators, parenting coaches, and real mums keeping it very real. So let's get into it. My guest today is known as the UAE's go-to parenting expert and everyone's favorite queen. Principal Lisa began her journey as a British nanny. She has dedicated over 30 years to working with children and families. She has been a special needs teacher and a principal, and she is now affectionately known as the UAE's potty, sleep, and nanny queen. 
I learned so much from this chat with Lisa and we covered so many topics from potty training, toddler tantrums, to Lisa's very personal and terrifying experience of almost losing her life after gastric surgery last year. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lisa Sherrington Boyd, aka Principal Lisa. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show. And there are so many things I want to talk to you about. But to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you do to support families here in the UAE? Well, I will do, certainly. Um, I started working with children and families immediately so I was a I was a young babysitter went on to become a nanny um, and actually got into more kind of community family work straight away I was actually 18 and I worked to set up a, a crash kind of nursery within a drug and alcohol advisory service and so the idea was I was looking after the children um, and creating that support while the families had counselling um, and advice. So that very early experience led me into family work. But I went on to um, become a teacher, a special needs teacher, and then a child and family officer. So my job was to work with vulnerable families, children with disabilities, children you know, in really challenging circumstances to work with them in the home and work with them in school to try and integrate that process and support them. And um, and then I went on to become a principal. So it's been about 30 years of working with little people and their mums and dads. Wow. And you started off in the UK. Is that right? I did. So I, 25 years in the UK before coming out to the UAE. And when I got to the UAE, actually, my husband begged me not to work to start with. He said, please, Mm. please don't take on another school. Please don't take on any cases. We just need to settle because it's been my life's passion and work to help families. Um, So when we got here, we had a little break for about six months. And then I took on the role of a principal to take over a nursery that wasn't doing so well um, and needed to shift from an Indian curriculum into a British curriculum. And so I spent four years doing that and taking them through all of the accreditations that they needed. Amazing. And you're very much known as the queen of many things here, um, but particularly the potty queen. Is that right? It is. It is. <laughs> Been something that's followed me, you know, all my life, really, because I, I just see the difference that it makes to a child when they can overcome the toilet training stage. So I'm known as the Potty Queen and my business is called Potty Queen, even though I work with families Mm. on a variety of things from fussy eating, behaviour. I enter into their homes a bit like Super Nanny, but I'm called the Potty Queen because that's kind of what I'm famous for. So behind me in my room is a plethora of poo-poo tricks and hacks PP ideas, um, everything you need to potty train your little one. And so my daughter is coming up one. So I'm not, I'm not at the potty training phase yet, but I am fascinated to learn more. So what are some of the signs we should be looking for um, that our child may be ready to start this process? How do we start? And what are the most common mistakes that parents make during this time? What, what are the most common things that you come across in your work? 
And it's the same mistake, really. And it begins with a C and it's just called consistency. And it's across all areas of parenting, really, because we try one thing and we feel like it doesn't work. So we give up and and then we've lost that consistency. We maybe take a break and then we start again and we try something new. But children really thrive on routine rituals and repeated practice. Um, so that would be the biggest thing I would say to any parent that's about to start toilet training, commit to it mm. and be really consistent with it. Um, I'm of the belief that children show emerging signs of toileting readiness um, around 18 months. Um, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be potty trained at 18 months, but about 18 months, that neuro pathway between the bladder and the brain is beginning to develop and beginning to flourish. And if you begin to start the process, then you're aligning your approach with natural child development. So you start to see about 18 months that the children might like to follow you to the bathroom they become a little bit interested in it. Things like they hide behind the sofa to do their poos or they pull at their nappy, becoming aware that there is this thing called toileting. So that interest begins to come in then. And a bit like when you teach a child to crawl or walk, you move things out of, out of reach or you move furniture so they can cruise. I believe that around that 18 to 24 months, we need to start helping them to develop the skills further rather than waiting and waiting and waiting for a complete set of skills to appear when they're three. We can start to work with them a little bit earlier. So by three, your child should be potty trained? No, there's no shoulds. And um, every single family is is different and I potty train three-year-olds all the time in mm. fact all of the children on my um list of families that I'm working with at the moment are all over three and that's because a lot of my families are in a panic because they've left it to this point to potty train and school is starting in September and they're really worried that there'll be accidents at school and schools have very robust toilet uh, policies mm. and that's pretty tricky when you're a three and a half year old so here we are having to get children toilet trained ready for fs1 if they're going into school it's not so important if they're staying in nursery but i just think that it can be easier to toilet train at the front end when that natural curiosity is coming in and maria montessori in her work dr maria montessori talked about sensitive periods and what she meant was, is that children um, become very keen and interested and fascinated in one thing, and it's part of their natural development. And if we can seize that and run with it, then it'll probably work a bit easier. Whereas three-year-olds, we're coming into that individualization where they realize they've got a choice in things. And then you get those power struggles, Peter. Yeah. Um, and that gets tricky. So if possible... Try and crack it before three, but it doesn't matter if you haven't. Yeah. And I have recently been seeing quite a lot of things online. And I don't know what the technical term is, but where people are trying to introduce, um, I guess, potty training habits from really early on. 
Yeah. Um, what is your take on this? Because I I'm seeing it come up a lot more, and I'm like, oh, should I should I be popping her on a potty now? It's um it's quite interesting. What's your take on it? It's called elimination communication, okay. and um, I I have to say I am a bit of a fan of it really. Okay. Um, um, it's actually something that we used to do years ago, but it, it, it's like, every, in fact, I was talking about this. I was in a workshop with a group of, of women this mm. morning. I, I was talking about this, that actually, because I've been in education and family work for so long, I've watched things that we used to do just get renamed as something else. Yeah. Rebranded. So, rebranded, really. So what we did as nannies was introduce toileting around one is now called elimination communication, except that elimination communication does start from birth. And the key word is in the title, communication. So the elimination is the P and the poo, but Mm. the communication part is what we're using to understand when to take our child to the toilet. And we know that children show physiological signs of when they're about to toilet so it's about reading them connecting very closely to your baby and following those to bring in some toileting it's not potty training we're not expecting them to self-initiate here actually it's you as the parent Mm. who's watching and anticipating those signs and taking them to the toilet because actually in a lot of countries children are out of nappies by one wow there must be lots of accidents along the way, though, because I feel I would know when my daughter is going to poo, but we, I'm not sure. Watch. Just yeah. watch her. And, and you you would start to see, and also you they, they do it at certain times, so straight after milk, you know, you're definitely going to get a pee-pee straight after milk. Yeah. And also... Elimination communication, you use a sound as a signal. So you might go, um, you know, there's a, I won't embarrass myself by making any more, but there are lots and lots of little (laughs) sounds that you you make. In fact, in China, children are toilet trained very early. They wear trousers that have an open section in the open so that they can open and pee and poo anywhere. And that's considered very normal. And kindergarten teachers can get a class of children to pee on demand by making their special sound. Wow. <laughs> That's quite amazing. I think when, I, when I've been seeing this, you know, on Instagram and TikTok, my initial thought is, oh, no, is this just something else I should be doing right now? <laughs> it's like I've just, I've just got, you know, I've just got into a nice rhythm with her sleep. Oh, now do I need to be popping her on a potty? So I think for me, obviously, it's personal preference. I think I'm going to just wait until she is around that sort of 18-month mark. But, of course, you've got to look for the signs. If she's starting to show signs, then, you know, I'll follow her lead. But I don't think I'm going to be the mum that's sort of um, – yeah doing doing this this style I don't yes. think it is a certain type of it is a certain type of mother that does that but it's you know across all mm. denominations all kind of cultures and ages but it's a mother who is very keen on that approach um, it's quite tricky for working mothers, although I have seen it done with a very, very skilled nanny alongside a working mum. But you need you need 
support to be able to follow yeah. through with that. In fact, I worked with a family a couple of years ago in the nursery um, and she, it was really important to her that we supported her elimination communication and we did. So we did, we did support her and we gave it a go in the nursery. Um, so it worked. It can be useful to, to practice with the poops in those early ages mm. because um, it gets them used to releasing a poo into something other than a nappy. Yeah, because that's one of the biggest things, isn't it? Because they don't like that sound. So then they can start resisting it, can't they, once the nappy is off? Because the nappy is all they've known. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, so they can then get a little bit sort of nervous and then start holding it in, can't they? I've heard that a lot from parents. Oh, all my, most of my day, half my day, actually, is helping families with poop withholding. It's yeah. a really common problem in the three to six age group. And it's often come from, well, I mean, there's a whole complex set of reasons why with poop withholding happens, but it does um, come about sometimes through pressured and rushed potty yeah. training. Yeah. I can I can see how that would happen when you're a busy household and you're just you just want to get it done and they pick up on your sort of um your frustration and your your urgency maybe it doesn't help that most potty books okay because obviously they want to get sold don't they mm. so the line is you know potty training three days or potty training an afternoon or stress-free potty training these big titles that yeah. are out there and buy those books and the problem is of course they talk about that it takes three days to toilet train a child so that's what parents expect often it's the expectations that cause stress for parents whereas I work with families over three weeks I don't like to rush this I want to make sure that we do this once and one time only and we approach it very carefully and in a really supportive way. So I look at toilet training over a three-week window. Amazing. Well, I'm definitely going to be getting you in when the time comes, Lisa. That's oh. for sure. Um, and I think the expectation you mentioned goes with anything in parenting. We have this expectation with sleep, with eating. And it's that that then is the damaging thing. If you just take that off, that pressure off, suddenly it all just becomes a little bit more peaceful. Um, can you tell us a bit about the behavioral management work that you do with families? I find this really fascinating. Yes. I mean, look, I really love all my work with families, but I do have a special place in my heart for children who find acting the way that everybody wants them mm. to really my heart has always gone out to those children um, and I've learned so much over the years. One of my jobs, um, I was head of pastoral care in a big community school back in the UK and I used to have a radio that was on my belt and I would run from everywhere across the whole school and it was a huge school and basically I dealt with behaviour. And so the idea was the teacher would, would, would send out a signal to say, you know, John's acting up in class, you know, let's call for Mrs. SB, because my name is Lisa Sherrington Boyd and the children couldn't always say Sherrington Boyd, so I was Mrs. SB. Let's call for Mrs. SB. So along I'd run like that and I'd get to the classroom and I'd find this little person completely, you know, lost it, really angry, really upset, 
The teacher's furious. She's had enough and she wants John out of her classroom and she wants a consequence. She wants a punishment so he never behaves that way in her class again. And what I learned really quickly was the less I did, the more effective Mm. I was. Though I certainly didn't go into that situation with, what, John, that's it. I've had enough or any of that. I used to actually just flick my eyes to one side to indicate that I wanted them to come with me. And then first of all, we would walk. We would walk. So we would have a little walk around. I would empathize. I would listen. And I wouldn't say very much. Because the big thing I learned was is that at that moment, they are in a reptilian part of their brain, which is fight or flight. Mm. And they can't go to the cortex, the logical part of their brain. They're stuck in all those emotions. And often as adults, we try and fix the situation. We punish, we put in consequences when they're in fight or flight. And it goes horribly wrong. So I learned very early on that actually the empathy was my best tool in that moment. And I'm not a big fan at all of timeout. And I'm quite well known for saying I don't like it. I feel uncomfortable when I watch it on that TV show that's very popular in America. We know the one. We know the one. (laughs) And I, whilst I think she's incredible, what she's done for families is extraordinary work. And she should get an MBE or something for it. But I'm uncomfortable with the timeout approach. So... I use all my experience of working with really challenging children for whom behaving the right way is almost impossible. I've learned years of tools from them and I take that into families' lives. So I go into the family, often the family, you know, really ordinary families. These are not rich families. These are just families that are like, we're at our wits end. We don't know what to do. So have a cup of tea with them, hang out with them for a bit, watch what's going on. And then I give them some practical things that they can get started with that will make life calmer. And are these children, because oh, we hear this term banded around the terrible twos, is it, does it tend to be toddlers, parents of toddlers that are coming to you? Or is it just various different ages of children? From from behaviour, I would say three to nine. Okay. Uh, three to nine. Um, so I can think of a family um, that I've been working with recently who reached out to me. They um, have three children and they were using time out about three times a day. So when you're using time out regularly... It's not working. You know, it's not working. You've got to try something different. Um, so actually the method that I've been giving them was really different for them. Um, and it, it was hard at first for them to apply it. Um, but I was doing home visits. So I was going in, I was demonstrating it. I was training nanny in the moment of how to use time in, which is so much more effective. And immediately that's power struggle that Mm. stress the crying has disappeared from the house we've now got a family working as a team that's amazing and so you don't like time out is it because you're sort of isolating the child so they learn that once you know they get into a bit of a you know an issue with their parent the response is then to put them on their own 
which I guess is quite scary for a little child. You know, you do something wrong and then you're immediately just on your own. Is that, is that the reason why you're not such a fan of it? I mean, I, I, you know, I've kind of lectured on this and staff that have worked with me, you know, as their principal will know that it's, I'm so passionate about it, but sometimes time out gets called something else and it's just being dressed up as something else. They go, oh, it's the naughty chair. Naughty step. Yeah. The thinking, this is the latest one, the thinking spot. Okay. All right. So let's just picture this. So we're a child. We can't regulate our emotions because, fact, the frontal lobe of our brain is not developed actually fully until we're about mid-20s. That's the part of our brain that regulates emotions. So imagine this. Let's say you're three. You can't regulate your emotions. You've got these big feelings. Oh, my goodness, are they big you're feeling anger probably for the first time. You don't know what it is. Your tummy's going, oh, oh, oh. You're, it, it's rising. It's getting bigger and bigger, these big emotions. You can't communicate. You can't say, do you know what? I'm not having my best day today, everyone. You don't know how to communicate that. And you start making some wrong choices. The adults around you perhaps are a bit inconsistent. Sometimes you're allowed to climb on the coffee table. Sometimes you're not. And then all of a sudden, they go, that's it. I've told you not to climb on the coffee table. You are going for time out. The child is picked up and plonked on the bottom of the stairs or some chair. Okay, so there he is. He's screaming even more. He's angry. He's upset. What do we think is going to happen in that moment so let's ask you as a parent what do you hope would happen to that little person um what so what do i hope would happen from having the time out what do you think is going to be the outcome of that well as a parent doing that you and i've never done it because my child is so little but i i'm guessing you're doing it because you're hoping that they will think about what they've done and it will calm them down but actually that's just probably going to escalate things even more because they're not being heard they're not getting what they want and it's probably going to completely backfire the only benefit to time out is that it could give you a breather right so as the parent yes okay so I approach all families with non-judgment. I love families. I'll do anything for them. And I really believe that families are doing the best that they can with the skills Absolutely. that they have yeah. at time. So let me just say there is this is a judgment-free zone mm. on podcast. Actually, it's Peter's podcast. Peter's judgment-free podcast. Yeah. So uh, no, I completely no, echo that. Yes. So no judgment. So if you are doing timeout and it's working, that's fine. But if you're using it a lot, it is time to make a shift. So it will give you a break possibly, but not always. Because as you see in the program that's on in America, when she teaches families how to use it, the child actually for a long time won't actually stay there. And so they keep coming out. They come out of time out and then you get angrier and angrier you want to exert your control why she's not listening this isn't what happens on the telly and you keep putting them back and back on the pot on onto the toilet seat emotions are going 
and you are not in your logical part of the brain as a parent. You feel under attack, you're panicking, your back's up against the wall. And it gets really, it gets really difficult. So I've worked with families where they are picking the child up, carrying them, and they're screaming the place down. What is happening in timeout for that child? And I kind of know this to be true because I've worked with so many children and they've told me. They will sit there and they're not able to process what they did wrong. They're not able to understand necessarily what led them to be there. The parent hopes that the child will hate it, not want to do it, and so will therefore adjust their behavior and not do it again. But actually, at that point, the child feels disconnected, isolated. They often are feeling resentment. Sometimes they're planning their revenge. Um, A lot of the time, they're thinking there's something wrong with me. Mm. I'm not very good at all this. And we do know that children do better when they feel better. So making them feel really bad actually is not your strongest skill at that point. Actually, what we want to do is to get in and use this as a teachable moment Mm -hmm. with them. Use time in. And so I'm not saying you go in and you start saying to that child, you know, John, you know, I'm really fed up with you climbing on the coffee table. You have been told a million times and you really mustn't hit your brother. Okay, so you can say all those. He can't hear you at that point. Really what you want to do is to de-escalate, get things really calm, see if you can redirect their thoughts if they're early on in the temper tantrum, redirect their thoughts See if you can offer an alternative, such as, I can see this is a bit tricky for you, John, right now. I can see you finding it a bit hard. I'm wondering if we both might like to have some cosy time. Would you like to come with me to the cosy spot? Or would you like to go by yourself and maybe I could hand you your torch? If you go to the cosy spot or shall we go to the sofa? And when you go to the sofa, would you like me to bring your basket of fiddle toys or would you like your jigsaw? Don't sit them with nothing to do. Mm. Give them something for their little hands to fiddle and play with and sit with them and model breathing, model regulation and see if you can de-escalate and then go to the next stage. Yeah, because then they are calm and they're able to listen to you. And it's just the same with adults. And I think so often you know, whether it's sleep or food, we have different tastes. We feel differently every day. Why do we assume that these little people will just be the same every day? Um, You know, they'll want the same things every day. They'll behave the same every day because they have emotions as well. And when you're in a conflict with an adult, you know, we know that it's not the best time sometimes to bring certain things up. Let's wait until we're a little bit calmer. You know, obviously we all make mistakes and, you know, these things happen. But why I find it so interesting that with children in all these different areas, we just, we sometimes forget that they are little people and that they are going to react like we do as well. And if I was feeling really upset and my husband told me to go and stand in a room on my own, I just feel devastated. I just feel so misunderstood and and disrespected and not heard. And so, and why would we? Yeah, and that's the key word there: disempowered. Yeah. You feel you have 
no power, okay, and, and, and you don't actually know what to do to fix it. Can't say to children, stop hitting the dog. We've got to show them how to look after the dog. We've got to show them how we support our sibling, our new baby sibling. What does that look like? Rather than saying, stop hitting your, you know, stop hitting your brother. And you're right. How awful would it feel if you were full of emotion? You couldn't articulate it. And somebody said, you can't talk about that now. Go to your room. Wow, you'd feel, gosh, you'd feel totally, totally lost yeah. in that. And and people say, well, you don't know my child. You don't know what they're like in a temper tantrum. But I've worked in a school um, in which all of the children had either ADHD or autistic spectrum disorder. These children found it very difficult to regulate their emotions. And I still never used time out. I always 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 used time in and so it's worked for me for years it's so fascinating and I'm actually really excited to get to this stage with my daughter and of course I'm going to make a million mistakes but I am really excited to you know see what her character is see how the three of us as a family kind of what the dynamic will be um and I'm sure I'll be asking you for help, Lisa, I'm sure. But I do, I do find it really fascinating how much of sort of these children that you're working with, how much of it is their environment, um, you know, what their parents are demonstrating versus they're just their own character, um, you know. And, and I'm sure you'd probably say that a lot of it is, and we are all just doing our best, we are, but a lot of it is what they are seeing. And you might not realize what they're seeing when they're so young, but they're picking up on so much, aren't they? Yes, I do something on my Instagram page every Friday called Secret Parents Mission. And the idea is that every Friday, parents can get something new to try in their parenting technique. And the idea is it's a secret because the children don't know. So, but at the end of it, I always say, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And, and, and what I mean by that is that children learn from those around them. So if you want your child to model, if you want your child to be a good listener, you need to model what listening looks like. And in fact, I would say one of the quickest ways to get your child to listen to you is to start listening to them. You know, I hear you. I understand. That must be tricky. Wow. It sounds like you're telling me that you don't like to put your shoes on. Yeah. I feel a bit like that. <laughs> listening. Oh, Lisa, you're so good. Um Okay, we're going to move on to a slightly uh, different topic now. Are you able to share a little bit about your mission to raise awareness about the dangers of gastric surgery and your personal experience around this? And I'm sure anyone following you will have seen your journey over the past year. So are you able to share a little bit about that with us? Of course. So I'll give you the backstory. So mm. I have a disease called ankylosing spondylitis. And sadly, it's the reason that I'm not a principal anymore. And I would love to still have that radio round my belt, running to situations to try to help. Um, but in the last year of being a principal, I spent half of that in a wheelchair. 
um, because of this condition that's in my spine. Um, and ankylosing spondylitis is a genetic arthritic disease which fuses your spine and shortens it and compresses it. Um, and because of that, I, beca I became less and less mobile. With that came weight gain. And they said that this was having more impact on my spine. And that as I'm going to be, my future is, is one of disability, that it would be really important that I got rid of some weight. So I looked into a few options and I was offered um, a gastric sleeve procedure. Um, and this is where about 70% of your, I mean, even just saying it, I'm thinking, why did you do that? Lisa? Mm. You crazy thing. 70% of your stomach is removed and it makes your stomach into a little sleeve so that when you eat, you're full mm. quicker. So you eat less. Okay. I entered into this on the brief that I was going to have it done at four o'clock in the afternoon and I would be out of hospital by 10 a.m. I shared it on Instagram wearing red lipstick with just about more positivity than you've ever seen in your life, thinking that this was an absolute breeze, um, only to leave the hospital eight weeks later, having died, well, not really died, almost died, and um, yeah, sepsis, ICU, collapsed lungs, internal bleeding, um, and a very, very horrific journey. So it was, it was tough. So yes, I had a gastric sleeve in January this year, and I have lost about three stone. And it's but also, no but also almost lost your life in the process. Yeah. And my spine is as bad as it ever was. <laughs> and so obviously they, they will have told you the risks involved. What happened to you? Is that quite unusual? Was it something no, during didn't. the procedure? Yes, it was. And no, they don't tell you the, tell you the risks. Actually, they say it's a very easy, simple procedure and um, it's very quick and, you know, it's, it's, it's easy and this, this and this, you know, in fact, you can see an interview on my Instagram very early on. It was presented as a very easy procedure. And it is, of course, an easy procedure for a lot of people. Mm. And it passes easily and, and it changes lives. You know, there is a lot of positivity around this. It can make a big difference to people. But the risks are huge and they're not talked about. What happened to me was, is that the staple line of the procedure wasn't sealed and so blood was leaking. Um, so I was in begging for help. I was in a lot of pain and discomfort. I was vomiting over and over and over again, begging for help. Um, I wasn't heard and this bleed became more and more and more until um, my lungs collapsed under the weight of all the internal bleeding. And I, I believe and understand that I had about a litre of fluid removed. I had um, eight blood transfusions um, and I spent a long time in, in ICU um, in a coma. And so... 
a lot of this came down to the fact that when you initially said, look, something's wrong here, I'm in pain, you weren't really listened to. But you know, don't you hear this all the time? We know, you know, you know, as a mother, when you're birthing your baby, you, you we've got these very strong instincts. In fact, I the day before I went to the hospital and I had a, some tests done and I ran out of the room, I had the strongest sense I was panicked. I just felt something was wrong and panicked and panicked. My husband said, don't be such a baby, go in and get it done. <laughs> so, but my instinct was there. My instinct was there. And the moment I woke up from the surgery, I was screaming. I was screaming. Yeah, I passed out very quickly because they want to get you up and out. And I passed out very, very quickly. I was begging and begging for help for about five days before they realized I had internal bleeding. I actually came home twice, was discharged, came home and collapsed at home. And collapsed at home. My husband had to carry me. and get get a wheelchair from the building we live in and go back again and try and get get some help. I mean, look, what happened to me isn't a usual case, okay, but the internal bleeding could happen to anybody and it can happen in any surgery. I think there's such a bigger message here as well. It's that listen to your gut instinct. Listen, and I talk a lot about birth on this podcast. I'm absolutely obsessed with preparing for birth. I find it, I find it so shocking that people prepare more for their wedding day than the birth of their child. Um, and so I'm obsessed with this. And it's the same. The same applies. You need to listen to that gut instinct and also know what your rights are. What it sounds to me, though, is if you were in a, you were in a very difficult position where you knew there was something wrong, but the, the people that needed to help you weren't listening, which is just a very difficult situation to be in because you knew that there was something wrong. It's not like you stayed quiet. Um, oh, and the thing was, is I kept saying, uh, and I kept saying, you know, I'm a very sensible person, right? And then I started going, I used to be a school principal, you know. I'm a very sensible and logical person. I'm telling you, I'm not well. And I I actually left the hospital holding a bowl and vomiting all the way to the car. How did they let you leave, Lisa? What they said was I needed to calm down and to take some Valium. Um, So, yeah. And so I, I went back came back, went back. And then the second time I went back, when I actually went in, I didn't even know how sick I was. The pain took over my whole body that I couldn't even understand what was happening to me. But I had a temperature of almost 40 and I'd gone into sepsis. I was a very, very sick person and had eight surgeries over those few weeks. Um, And... Yeah, you know when something's wrong. And how are you today? Because you look absolutely amazing. Obviously, people can only hear us. They can't see you, but you look phenomenal. And people following your journey on Instagram can see how, how amazing you look today. How, how are you doing inside? I, um, I, I have to say, you know, emotionally, and I'll, I'll share this. I haven't talked about it, but I found emotionally the experience in ICU difficult to get over. 
Um, I felt there was a lot of trauma there. I couldn't sleep because I was actually in a half coma. So I, mm. I, I shouldn't sleep, but I was. So that bothered me for a while. Physically, I'm now able to eat and drink, whereas I just I was discharged from hospital with um, a, a feeding tube for a long time. I couldn't feed myself, and um, so my weight has stopped plummeting. So I'm, um, you know, things are safer for me, but. Unfortunately, I still have ankylosing spondylitis. Not that I was ever going to take it away, um, but you know, I have rough times with that. That means it is. It is I, I kind of hoped that it would free me from some of the spine pain, um, but it, it is still there, unfortunately. But I'm now a vegan um, and gluten free, and so my digestive system is working much better. Wonderful and. I'm not surprised that it's the trauma side of it that, you know, is probably going to take the longest to not get over because I don't think we ever really get over these things, but sort of come come to terms with and find peace with. Because I've had a very close friend of mine who was in ICU um, after an accident and she says the same thing. It's it's that experience that is actually the, the hardest to get your head around and do and the things you hear and see and and having that sort of very close brush with your life is, I mean, it's, it's a huge traumatic thing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's true. It's traumatic for my family. And um, your family. Actually, yeah. For everybody. I mean, I, you know, I was actually in ICU and my daughter was with me and um, she was singing to me. That was my favorite thing was just get anyone to sing a song. <laughs> girl um anyway she was singing to me and she said I just stopped breathing and then that was that and then that's when I slipped into a coma and she was screaming and shouting and begging for help hysterical you know we're very close um and actual fact that's when she set about a campaign on Instagram to get everybody to do a song for me and record cheap thrills and and actually um yeah lots of people did it which was good I love that video yeah, and you know, it was so tough on my on my you know, my husband. He can't even look at pictures from then. And what's really interesting for me is people will message me on Instagram who maybe haven't messaged me for months, but messaged me when I was ill. And so the last picture they commented on comes up and I see this picture of me and I'm like, Oh my goodness, I had no idea that I looked so grey. I mean, I looked like I was dying. Mm. You know, but I don't I don't entirely remember that. A, a funny thing about ICU is obviously they use a lot of alcohol to clean everything. So I haven't been able to wear perfume since because the smell of it reminds, reminds me you. of <laughs> How interesting. Well, Lisa, I'm so happy to see you today just looking fabulous. And thank you for sharing that with me. Um, we're going to do a little quick fire round now. Um, before I let you go. So Lisa, your one piece of advice for first time mums. Oh, bless you, first time mums. Um, so my, my advice would be is be kind to yourself. Have realistic expectations and please don't compare yourself to anybody else. Your baby is unique and you are unique in your motherhood. Yeah, comparison is the biggest thief of joy for sure. Um, what's one thing nobody warned you about before becoming a mum? 
that it never ever stops so my children are 28 26 and 23 and um you still love them as much as you did the day they were born you still want to be with them as much and you still worry about them as much and you think that you can't wait for the day when you know your house is quiet and everything's organized but when that day comes you'll wish that you know you could go back to the days when you could just hold your child in your arms I'm very very close with my mum and I remember when I was pregnant saying to her mum I just can't stop worrying you know she's yeah, I think I was six weeks pregnant at this point and I just said I can't stop worrying you know I, this is the most precious thing ever and I'm so obsessed with her and I'm only six weeks pregnant I, I mean I knew she was a girl from from day one and uh, my mom was like oh well P that never stops so you're gonna have to learn how to live with that because I still worry about you and you're a grown woman so <laughs> that never ever ever stops yeah yeah we have a, we have a whatsapp group in our family and if one of them haven't hasn't checked in i start going has anyone seen uh, even you know and they're in their 20s yeah never stops um your favorite thing about being a mum oh i've loved everything everything i've loved being i've loved 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 being a mum it's the i don't know the friendships the connection um, and being ill recently, I just was so grateful for my children who took it in shifts, you know, and you're never alone. Mm. Again, I don't a mum. That's been my experience. I had three. I had three by the time I was 24. So, you know, um, I was a very young mum. Yeah, I don't think you're ever truly alone, which is, which is a beautiful thing. Um, and finally, Lisa, what does motherhood mean to you in three words? Now, you'd asked me this before and I've forgotten what my answer was. Something like love, connection, love, connection, and forever. You'll always love your children forever and you'll always be connected. Like a, there's a wonderful book called The Invisible String and it talks about that we're always connected by love, which is a long string. And that's how I feel about motherhood. So love, connection, and forever. I love that. Lisa, thank you so much. I'm going to put all your information in the show notes so people know where to find you. And like you said at the beginning of this podcast, you help with all different areas um, with babies, children, families. So it's not just the potty training, even though you are known as the potty queen, it's lots of different areas. So I urge listeners, please do follow Lisa, get in touch with her um, because she can help you whatever you're going through as a family here in Dubai. So Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. It's been my pleasure. And thank you to everybody listening. Thank you. Thank you so much once again to the queen of all things parenting, Principal Lisa. You can find links to Lisa's Instagram and website in the show notes below. You can also find links below to our social media accounts, along with info on our recently launched Meaningful Mama Mornings, which take place every month here in Dubai. With these Mama Mornings, we are so thrilled to be able to bring you a different expert guest in person each month from infant sleep consultants, weaning experts, parenting coaches, and so much more. So I really hope to see you at one of our events in the near future. And finally, I would be so grateful if you could show some love and please rate, review, and subscribe to Friday's Child the Podcast to help us reach more wonderful mamas. 
Until next time, thank you for listening.